Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Welcome to Read Smart, the official podcast for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. Now, last Thursday, the winner of the Bailey Gifford Winner of Winners Award was announced with James Shapiro's 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, being chosen as this year's judge's favourite book. The book explores Shakespeare's crucial journey as a writer, as well as how he became one of the most loved and treasured writers of all time. Well, I'm joined today by the winner, James Shapiro. Congratulations, James. Tell us how you're feeling. I'm still feeling quite uh, buzzed and thrilled from the event. I don't think I've slept more than a few hours uh, since, uh, since winning it. And when you think back, I mean, it's been a it's been a few days now since you your name was called out and off you went to the podium to accept the prize. Um, what are your memories of that moment? Uh, shock, uh, gratitude. It brought me back to two thousand six when I had first won it as a uh, a much younger uh, much younger writer, and uh, a sense that. It was a coin toss, really. There were so many extraordinary writers uh, in the room who were finalists. So I felt uh, very lucky. When we spoke last, James, you said that this this book had writing this book had changed your life. I mean, it took you a very long time to do with all kinds of obstacles along the way of um, people resisting the idea that you had of writing this book in the way that you did. But the, you also said it was the best book that you'd ever written. I mean, this must feel like a real cherry on the cake. I think, and I, I know that uh, I have good friends and many of us who disagree with me about this, but I think the best work uh, uh, of nonfiction, at least, comes at an early point in one's career as a writer. It doesn't mean you're at the top of your game as a writer. But you stand in relationship to your field of expertise, in my case, Shakespeare, at an oblique enough angle to see what's wrong with the dominant ways of thinking and writing about that author or that subject. So I was very lucky to start this book in my late 30s and finish it around the age of 50. Had I started it now and finished it, say, five or 10 years from now, I think I'm too well settled uh, in in the profession to have written as edgy uh, and as insightful a book. So uh, I'm still writing. I came back from uh, winning the prize and uh, was writing on the flight home and only stopped when I entered the rehearsal room of Hamlet, which I went to right after uh, arriving at JFK Airport. Uh, I still have books to write. I hope they're as good as 1599, but I know there's something special about a book you write at a formative moment in your development as a writer. You also started writing it at a time in in the late 1980s, at a time when I, I guess the cultural firmament was quite different. I mean, we are in the middle of all kinds of arguments about the literary canon and what should be taught and what is relevant and what should and should not be included. In that context, given how 
ubiquitous Shakespeare continues to be both at high school, school level, university and so on. And and of course, his plays are, are put on everywhere, all over the world. Do, do you, what would you say to those people who argue that actually, you know, he is the kind of ultimate dead white male in the context of those arguments about the canon? And, and how, how do you talk about um, the way in which his work continues to speak to people today? I'd answer that in two ways. Uh, the first way in responding to the dead white male argument, after our conversation, I'm going to take the number one train downtown to the public theater, where I'm working with a mostly African-American cast on a production of Hamlet set in the American South in 2021. And uh, that company, those actors, that director, Kenny Leon, a, a major Broadway director, see Shakespeare as a way of expressing the cultural issues that matter most to black people in America today. So if you want to get rid of Shakespeare as a dead white man, you'd only, you not only have to argue with conservative politicians who fetishize Shakespeare, but with practicing artists who find his work a, a tremendous vehicle for expressing issues that might not otherwise be easily expressed. I was just going to in interject there, really, in the context of what you have done with this particular book is also seems to be antithetical to the other thing that we see all the time, which is that so much of art and literature uh, is, is seen through the lens of um, contemporary ethics and contemporary values. And, and, and how, I mean, how useful do you think that is? Can it sit side by side with with what you have tried to do, which is to to, to attempt to get people to immerse themselves in the the the, the contemporary life of Shakespeare, the, the social and political context, and and then have a kind of deep reading of the plays alongside that. And and it does seem to sit really quite opposite to what we tend to do in other areas of art and literature. I think that's true. Uh, I think Shakespeareans uh, fall into two categories, those who see him as a writer for the page and those who see him as a writer for the stage. I've always put myself in that second category. These plays only exist in particular cultural moments, and it is that aspect of Shakespeare, whether that cultural moment is 1599, which I spent many, many years researching, or 2023. And uh, I think the pleasure and the challenge uh, for anybody who turns to a Shakespeare play is to experience him in the present while fully informed about that past. Do, do you find yourself turning to Shakespeare when you look at contemporary politics, say contemporary American politics, of, of which quite a large part could be put in the in the kind of realm of both both tragedy and comedy? About once a day, I get in my inbox uh, uh, an email from a journalist saying, is politician X King Lear or Hamlet? Or... <laughs> and uh, I, I get on the phone with a few of them, and these are really distinguished journalists. And I explain that that's the long question. What you really want to do is get deeper into what it means to be Shakespearean. Shakespeare, comedies, histories, tragedies, 
His plays feature failed leaders. Most of his play, Shakespeare is interested in how leaders fail. He's not interested in how leaders succeed. And if you begin to look at that, you begin to see that what allows powerful people to gain power doesn't necessarily allow them to retain that power, whether it's Elon Musk or Boris Johnson, uh, the mighty fall. And Shakespeare is quite interested in that process. If you want to understand the issues of leadership today, it's not in a celebratory way, but Shakespeare, more than anything else, was interested in failure, was interested in overreaching. And and, and do you think that that in, in, in many ways, what, what you appear to be saying is that this is in, in some way how Shakespeare should be taught to students. And, and you could argue that actually he isn't taught in that way at all. He is not taught in that way. Uh, perhaps in a few business school classes that I've taught uh, at the Columbia School of Business, uh, he is taught that way. I think we want to see Shakespeare in a, in a celebratory mode rather than in a critical mode. And uh, there, are, there are many, many ways in which his plays can and should be uh, taught today that probably are not being utilized. But uh, I think and I hope that when journalists turn to Shakespeare, they turn to him not to plug in particular individuals that they remember from reading in school decades ago, but reflect upon what's really quite brilliant in his plays about political process. James Shapiro, every time I speak to you, I'm just so completely transported by your enthusiasm and your sensibility. I am so, so delighted that you won this prize. Thank you so much for for joining us. And um, we'd also like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous support of this podcast. And if this episode has piqued your interest in the history of the prize, you can find a 30-minute documentary on our website. And in the run-up to the winner announcement, we have also been posting special shortlist editions of the Read Smart podcast, as well as six author questions and answers. We've also shared prize six bookseller videos in a collaboration with the bookstore Waterstones, where we called on booksellers who are around the same age as the prize. So that's 25 years old to champion the shortlisted worlds. To catch up on all this content and to immerse yourself in all of the 25th anniversary celebrations, do check out at BG Prize on our social channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Once again, James Shapiro, congratulations and thank you so much. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.